not going to dance like Jason does to that song. I'm sorry. Uh, anyway, uh, I want to welcome you guys this morning, uh, whether you're in person or joining us here online. For those of you who are new or maybe you need a refresher, uh, my name is Derek and I'm one of the pastors here at Zion and we are so happy that you are here and worshiping with us today. If you are new, we would love to connect with you. So we do invite you to head to the desk and uh, we'd love to meet you or flag down one of us wearing a, a staff badge because we just love to talk with you. So this morning, we are going to be bringing the Rock of Ages series to a close. And I, I do, I, so I hope you enjoyed that bumper because it's the last time. Uh, <laughs> I'm just kidding. But we are bringing this thing to a close. And I hope this, I, I really do hope this series uh, was impactful for each and every one of you. Because, you know, as we explore each attribute, hopefully we got closer and closer to God. That each attribute connects us spiritually and hopefully then will help transform us uh, to be more like him. And so, anyway... Uh, but here's the thing, we have barely, even with the, what do we do, six, seven, eight weeks, whatever, however many we did, we didn't even begin to scratch the surface of who God is. And so I said in that first series, and I'll, I'll say it again, uh, we're going to spend eternity getting to know God and exploring who he is, and that is such a good thing. We have such an awesome God that we get to explore more and more and more. And so, but this kind of leads us to this final attribute. And I think in order to truly accept the call of what it means to be a Christian, we need to learn all, all the other attributes about God because they seem to help reinforce this final attribute. And in order to let this, this final one like fully sink in or fully change uh, who we are, we, have to, we do have to know God. We have to be able to be certain about what we're, what we're getting into. Because I do believe that whether you like it or not, I think this last attribute will leave you with a challenge at the end of the day. Whether you want, it, whether you want to accept it or not is, is, is going to be up to you, but I believe it does, it's going to leave us with one no matter what. And this final attribute is God is king. And I know this might sound more like a title or a rank of God, but it's so much more than that. It's an attribute because it, it's not like it was passed on to him. It wasn't, it wasn't, he wasn't a, given a crown or a castle or an empire. He did not inherit his title or the land or the status. He did not have to fight or destroy in order to get it. Being king is just who God is. Every earthly king is merely chasing after and mimicking God's kingship. They may have had to fight to get it, but at the end of the day, they are merely copying God's kingship. And they usually fail and, pretty, and fail pretty spectacularly, mainly because they focus on, on power, authority, status, and maybe even the riches that come along with it. But even if, even let's say they were a good king, they would fail because they're still only borrowing the crown, imitating the true king. God is king by his very nature. And that's kind of what we're going to be talking about today. And we're going to discuss some kingdom language here, because I think in today's culture, I don't think we have any real idea of what it means for someone to be king. We don't really use that kingdom language in our everyday lives. Sure, we may have watched the news coverage of like the Queen of England passing, um, 
Oh, there she is. Oh, wow. Uh, so, we may have, so we may have heard of her passing, or maybe you were one of the, the millions of people that watched the Oprah special about the royals, Prince Harry and Meg, whoever. Uh, maybe you watched that. Or maybe there's someone else on your list uh, who maybe has earned their title. So maybe like the king of rock and roll. We have Elvis. Maybe it's the king of pop. We have Michael Jackson. Or maybe my favorite, the king of country music, George Strait. And this next one may be controversial, and if you want to uh, you know, go online on Facebook and want to want to challenge me in the comments, I will get on there and challenge. The queen of pop, uh, Taylor Swift. Yeah, I know, Madonna, uh, Britney Spears, whatever, come at me. Uh, my list. Uh, so anyway, uh, then we have the king of the pride lands. We have Mufasa. Uh, we have king of Wakanda, T'Challa. And there's so many more that I could have done. And so we do maybe have an idea of kingship. But these examples don't have any, like they have authority over their, like authority and supremacy over their respective kingdoms or platforms, but they don't, re they don't represent what it truly means to be king. None of these things have an impact on our actual lives. They don't have any real authority over us. And the closest thing that we may have would be like the president, but that's still pretty distant. Presidents are elected, they have oversight, uh, they don't operate under complete authority. So it might be closer to thinking of like the authority of local things, of maybe a boss or a parent or maybe your wife, you know, maybe something like that or husband. It goes both ways. Um, should have said spouse, maybe. That might have been less controversial. Uh, <laughs> but even these are limiting examples. For most of them, we still have some sort of authority or rights within that arrangement. But when we're talking about a king, we are saying that they have supreme authority over their entire kingdom. And in America, we have limited understanding of what it means to be under the authority of a king. Even despite all of our rules, laws, and governances in our lives, we are still a very free nation. And this is rarely the case for kingdoms that we find within scripture. And here's the thing, er, you know, earthly kings have a very poor track record. It's not great. And so we as a society, I don't think today, I don't think we would do, have done very well Americans under kingship in scripture. I think we would have been very, very bad at it because due to our access to freedom, I think we've lost the ability to, to know how to submit. I mean, even saying that word makes my whole body want to resist. Anything telling me I can't do something, I immediately want to go do it. And so... I think it's challenging to, to submit to somebody else, especially if you do not trust that person or if you don't agree with like that person's motivation. And so I think too often we have felt let, let down by others, which has made us weary of like trusting others. And it seems to hurt more when you're let down by somebody else. Like for myself, you know, I trust myself a lot because if I do fail, I think I give myself a lot more slack than I would somebody else. If somebody else lets me down, I'm probably going to take it a little harder. And so I think, that, I, I think that mentality plays a huge role in how we see God. Are we able to comprehend God as king? Can we abandon that hesitation we have towards submission in order to be a part of God's kingdom? Are we able to see that there's freedom found in submitting to God? Now, 
Before we move on to my next point, I need to add one more important monarch to that list that uh, we just had. You may have heard of him, but probably don't know his story, but he is King of the Raft. And you may have guessed it, that's Derek Crawford, the, the, the true reigning King of the Raft. Now, let me get, begin by telling you a tale as old as time. Every... <laughs> I thought that joke was funny. Uh, <laughs> every year, for as long as, as long as I can remember, our family plays a round of King of the Raft at our family cabin. Actually, we play lots of rounds, uh, but it's a pretty big deal. Like, we, we like all get on there, and then we all just start chucking people off. And uh, they start us out pretty young. And, you know, as the years progress, I feel like my, my technique and skill also progressed. We've used old-fashioned carpeted rafts, we've used water trampolines, we've used those uh, lily pad things, uh, and each year, I usually win. This is not me bragging, but merely a fact. I usually win, or am I at least in the final battle with my Uncle Matt? And if you don't want to take my word for it, about here's a, how about a direct quote from the scrapbook that my grandma made me? I don't know if you can read that. It says I'm the king. Uh, that matter has now been settled. My grandma has spoken. Uh, it is written in the history books. There are three volumes of my uh, childhood scrapbook that she made. That's all, each of them are this thick. So it's, it's in it forever. It's there. So I might as well put on my crown. I brought one. Doesn't fit because I stole it from Z Kids. Uh, but that's okay. Yeah. And yes. I am well aware of my advantage. It is kind of unfair because I am twice the size of the rest of my family members, and I understand that I have, I have a special, like, it's not fair to them. But either way, at the end of the day, I'm king. And it really hasn't changed much, even today. Uh, this is me as a grown man, and if you can't see that face, that is a face of somebody not willing to give up his crown to a child. I was not going to lose, and it didn't matter uh, how young that kid was. They were in a life jacket. It doesn't matter. I can throw them farther. <laughs> and so I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to leave this on. <laughs> I didn't cut off my circulation. Uh, I'm not going to lie. It's fun being king. And, you know, I, I tell you this story because I hope it comically points out a major point of mine. It is fun being king. My kingdom was the raft. My defeated challengers were my subjects, and I liked being in charge. I was perfectly content with the game not being fair. Everyone else could do nothing about it. I did not have to submit to anyone. I got to make the rules. The only worry I had was preparing myself to defend my title. And so why is kingdom language so important? I think the language helps to frame the difference between an earthly king and God as king. We need to understand what it would look like to follow an earthly king and be able to compare that to following God and submitting to his kingship. Because here's the thing. I'm sure most people would probably agree that God is king. And I'm sure most of us would say that we would want to submit to him. The problem lies in the difference between saying and doing. Do we actually live that out? And so I want us to take a second, and we're going to look at what it would be for God to be king. And so during the first message of this series, I encouraged all of you to reach out if there was an attribute of God that interested you. 
And I did have one person reach out, Hannah Bartlett, asked me about the sovereignty of God. And I think how she worded it is like, mm, that'd be cool. And I'm like, it is. It is, an interesting, it is an interesting concept. I really think she probably just wanted to watch me butcher the word sovereignty for 45 minutes. I was in the car with uh, Megan and Jason this week. I couldn't say it to save my life. I had to, like, practice it. Uh, so I think she probably just wanted to watch me fail at saying it. But I'm going to give Hannah the benefit of the doubt and say that she actually did want to know about it. And so, first off, I do want to say thank you, Hannah, for reaching out. We do really want these sermons to be something that is impactful and important to you guys. And so, uh, that invitation still continues. Please reach out if there are topics that you would find beneficial. But anyway, the sovereignty of God is an interesting topic. And it goes hand in hand with this idea of God being king. Sovereignty is the supreme power, influence, and authority apart from any external control. This could, this could mean control over people, territory, nations, or even areas of influence. So God has the power and is not bound by any outside force. His authority is absolute. And so here's the thing. Sovereignty alone isn't good or bad. It's actually how it is wielded that decides how it impacts others. And so I, did, I, I do have a little analogy. Uh, it's not much. I brought one bowl. <laughs> so it's a, it's a really good bowl. Uh, but if I take this bowl and I were to throw three ants into it, okay, my sovereignty over those ants is not in question. I could squash them. I could pour water on them. I could put a lid on it. My power and authority over them is, is unquestioned. But what I do with that authority, how I treat that, how I treat those ants, that is within my sovereignty. I could, I could, I could treat them well. I could give them food. I could give them, I don't know, dirt. I don't know what ants use. Uh, dirt and whatever it is ants eat. I could, I could feed them. I could grow them. I could mature them. I could let them wander outside of the bowl. But my sovereignty over that bowl and over those ants doesn't change. Now, here's the thing. Oop, I just threw them out. Whoops. <laughs> uh, Man, I'm, I'm nailing it today. Uh, but anyway, I don't want to apply this analogy to God himself. I think most illustrations fall really short when you do that. So I'm, I'm actually just trying to help you get the mi your mindset around what sovereignty is. It's that complete and total control over something. No outside forces have any influence over what you're doing. Um, and so that's kind of what, what we're trying to think about when we think about God. And so I, I do. I think it helps, helps you visualize what that would look like. So anyway, from the beginning of Scripture, we see the God of Israel is in complete control. The creator, the sustainer. God is described as all-powerful, all-knowing, and all-good. In the garden, he provided, he, he provided. He was the source of life. Adam and Eve were dependent on God. He showed them what was good and what was right. He set healthy boundaries for them, and then the fall happened. And it's really easy to look at that moment as just sheer disobedience or defiance of God's instruction. And yeah, it is definitely those things, but I really think it, it even pushes, there's more happening there than just that. When they took a bite from that fruit, they were not just being defiant, they were trying to be God's equal. They wanted to become God. Instead of putting their trust in God, they decided they wanted to know for themselves. And so I take it back to my King of the Raft illustration. 
My cousins were not content with me being their king. Even though I was a humble and beloved king, uh, they, still, they still resisted. They rebelled. They fought back. They wanted to be king themselves. I think this is, is kind of just human nature. This behavior, is, I think, is reflected in the story of the Israelites. Even when, when God freed them from Israel, he showed his power. But his people still resisted complained, and turned to other gods. Yet he continued to provide. Even as they resisted, even as they they pulled back, even as they literally said, we want to follow other gods, that didn't change the way God acted. And then if we jump ahead in the story, God gets gets right to the point and reveals the problem. So we're going to take a look at 1 Samuel uh, chapter 8. They were being, at the time, they were being led by a priest named Samuel. And during this era, God's people were led by priests who submitted to God as king. This was kind of their relationship. The priests would follow the will of God. But as Samuel was getting older, his tribe just started, they just started to rebel. They challenged his leadership, and Samuel was obviously pretty upset to that, and so he took his concerns to God. And so in 1 Samuel 8, 6 through 9 reads, Finally, All the elders of Israel met at Ramah to discuss the matter with Samuel. Look, they told him, you are now old and your sons are not like you. Give us a king to judge us like all the other nations. Samuel was displeased with their request and went to the Lord for guidance. Do everything they say to you, the Lord replied, for they are rejecting me, not you. They don't want me to be their king any longer. Ever since I brought them out of Egypt, they have continually abandoned me and followed other gods. And now they are giving you the same treatment. Do as they ask, but solemnly warn them about the way a king will reign over them. Samuel was not the one being rejected here. They were rejecting God as their king. And this is significant because this was God's chosen people. And yet God still gave them what they wanted. But he did issue this warning. He told them what to expect from an earthly king. They will be subjected to this king who will ask a lot. A king will ask for a very high price, land, money, men for his army that would grow his crops and make his weapons. Women would become his bakers and make perfume. He'll want a portion of their best crop, livestock, and slaves. God warned that they will regret this decision. In 1 Samuel 8, it continues in verses 18 through 22. When that day comes, you will beg for relief from this king you are demanding. But then the Lord will not help you. But the people refused to listen to Samuel's warning. Even so, we still want a king, they said. We want to be like the nations around us. Our king will judge us and lead us into battle. So Samuel repeated to the Lord what the people had said, and the Lord replied, Do as they say, and give them a king. Then Samuel agreed and sent the people home. The people still wanted a king. A heavenly king wasn't enough for them. They needed an earthly king. And uh, for those Bible experts in the crowd, you probably already know, things did not go well from that point forward. The whole king model didn't go smoothly at all. It was a hard time for the Israelites, a time of war, corruption, hate, destruction. They were forced into exile. Their kings led them into chaos. 
everything that Samuel warned came true. And actually, it, so much worse than what Samuel warned came true. So it's not hard to see why we might have a distrust for authority. History seems to reflect a major abuse in regard to how kings treat their subjects. It makes sense that there might be a trust issue. It makes sense why we may push back. We may not say it, but we might push back on the idea of God as king. Earthly kings have abused their sovereignty. And it's not just biblical history. You can see it throughout history. It, it happened all the time. And so this is where we're going to turn our attention to Jesus. And I gave a sermon on this topic several years ago. And at this point is where I started talking about the mistaken perception of the Messiah. The people at this time, they were desperate and broken. They were hurt from generations of abuse from uh, poor leadership. They, from all of the oppression that they were feeling from outside empires. And the people during this time, the time of Jesus, were trapped. They were being held captive by the, by the Roman Empire, and they felt like they were in major need of rescue. They were wanting a powerful Messiah to vanquish their evil oppressors and free them. They only wanted the roaring lion of Judah, but instead they also got the Lamb of God. Instead, they got baby Jesus. And even adult Jesus, they got a man who, who taught love, kindness, and a heart for one another. And so this is where I want to depart from that previous message for a minute. I think it's easy for us to focus on the teaching of Jesus and lose sight of his sovereignty a little bit. Here's the thing. Jesus still has supreme power. We'll get back to his teaching and ministry for a moment, but just because Jesus came as the servant teacher who professes love for the broken does not diminish his authority. There is a difference between not having power and choosing when and how to wield it. Think about that ant analogy a little bit. Jesus has authority, but it's up to him to decide how he uses it. So let's not make, a, let's not make this mistake for one second. God is all-powerful. Jesus was sent to enact the will of God, and all authority was given to him. And so this leads us to today's scripture reading, which comes from 1 Timothy 6. And to set this verse up a little bit, it's a direct response to the verses that kind of came before it. And these verses talked about two major things. The first one was false teachings and how we need to focus on the godly teachings of Christ Jesus. But then the second half was the need to be careful not to fall in the temptations of money. And we just talked about the generosity of God last week. And so it kind of it goes, goes back to that a little bit. The power of money has that ability to pull you down. And kings definitely fell into this trap. Remember what Samuel warned, how much it would cost to have a king. So here's another verse in Scripture warning us against it. What do they say when things are said multiple times to listen? Yeah, I think, that, I think that's an important one. But our scripture reading is about shunning those bad behaviors and focusing on God. And so would you guys please stand with me if you're able, and would you read the scriptures aloud together? And it's going to be 1 Timothy 6, 11 through 16. But as for you, man of God, shun all of this. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. 
take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and for which you have made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the presence of God, who gives life. Did you guys stop? <laughs> All right. Sorry, it's different. I'm going to keep going. Ah, now I don't even know where I stopped. Um, in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to commit the commandment without spot or blame and tell the manifestation of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the right time. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, it is he alone who has immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. To him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Congregation may be seated. This is the word of the Lord. Sorry about that. <laughs> you, guys, you guys, I got thrown off there a little bit. That's okay, though. All right. So what this is saying is shun all those either evil things, pursue th the things that God values, and understand what Jesus did for you. But I think there are also three main uh, things that can be pulled that we can attribute to God from this verse. And the first one is I want to focus on that ending, that verse 15. He who is blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Because I want you to grasp what Paul is saying here. Jesus is called king of all kings, lord of all lords. This means in the end, all other rulers will be conquered or abolished, and he alone will reign supreme as king and lord of all the earth. There is no power, no king, no lord who can oppose him and win. The writers of Hebrews speaks of the Lord Jesus in Hebrews 1.3. The Son radiates God's own glory and expresses the very character of God. And he sustains everything, the mighty power of his command. When he has cleansed us from our sins, he sat down in the place of honor at the right hand of the majestic God in heaven. His command is final. When a king sits, the decision is made. The decision is final. The second thing we can pull from this is Paul makes the point that Jesus was humbled in his earthly ministries and that humiliation, that his humiliation will result in glorification. So in Philippians 2, 9 through 11, Paul discusses to the extent at which Jesus went to atone for sinners. So Jesus' perfect obedience is the reason that God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, that so at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Oh man, you want to say amen there, don't you? Uh, and the third one comes from the book of Revelation. We see the kingship of Jesus will last forever. In chapter 11, we hear voices in heaven proclaiming that the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of Christ, and that he will reign forever and ever. So fundamentally, the idea of Jesus being king of kings and lord of lords means there's no higher authority. He is deserving of this attribute. His reign over all things is absolute and will not end. Therefore, God raised him from the dead and placed him over all things. Ephesians 1, 21 through 23. 
far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything for the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. And I know, and I know this, this might sound obvious to some. Of course, God is king. Of course, God is sovereign. But I think it's also not always that obvious. There might be times where this is difficult to comprehend. Like I said, with the, those past notions of what it means to follow a king, I think it can cloud our judgment a little bit. Or we can focus so much on, the, on, the, on Jesus, the loving Jesus, the caring Jesus, that we can also forget that he still was the roaring lion, that his authority was still there. We were not merely sent a good teacher, a wise prophet, and a loving, king, a loving friend. We were sent a king. So now I do want to direct our attention back to the teachings and ministry of Jesus because I think that is an important question that is raised. How do we reconcile the authority and power of God with the kingdom that Jesus established throughout his ministry on earth? Throughout the gospel, Jesus is casting visions of what the kingdom of heaven is supposed to look like. He uses language that both paints of a future kingdom and a kingdom that is being lived out today. And so more narrowly, the kingdom of God is a spiritual rule over the hearts and over the lives of those who are willing to submit to God's authority, to submit to God as king. And then those who defy God's authority and refuse to submit to him a king are not a part of that kingdom. Those are us that try to make ourselves the king. So in contrast, like those who acknowledge the lordship of Christ and gladly surrender to God's rule in their hearts are a part of God's kingdom. And there's a, there's a lot more about the kingdom of God in scripture uh, that we, we, could, we could dive into for a, a really long time going into what the kingdom of heaven looks like. But, the, but to maybe kind of summarize it a little bit is, is this, that Jesus taught love God, love neighbor. Because that's kind of the heart of what this kingdom is, the idea of lowering oneself in order to serve another in need, that love, kindness, compassion, integrity, truth. Like all those things are valuable. And so this takes me back to my analogy of the king of the raft. In my earthly example, I have to battle my way to be king. I have to fight I have to wrestle. I have to kick some cousins in the neck to get them off the raft. I have to battle very hard to defend my crown. And at the end of the time, and especially now that they're getting bigger, uh, it's physically exhausting. That crown is heavy. But with God as king, there is no battle. We are invited to join him on the raft. Now, his authority and power and sovereignty are not in question, but he invites us to live and thrive within his kingdom. But here's the thing. It requires us to give up our need to be king. It requires us to give up our crown. Every time we sin, what we are doing is that we are building the walls to our own personal kingdom. Every time we push against God, we are building our fortress. We are making ourselves the kings of our own castles. Okay, good. Every time we sin, 
And here's what we do. We just keep holding on tighter and tighter and tighter to our crown. We are trying to be king. But here's the thing. There is only one kingdom, or one king in God's kingdom. We cannot be in God's kingdom if we continue to wear our own crown. We must, and we, we have to understand that we will only fail and cause suffering when we try to make ourselves king. So we must be prepared to submit ourselves to Jesus as king. Because here's the thing, he is a different type of king. That's why we've been learning about all of these attributes, all of these things over the last few weeks to show how much God is worthy of following. We do not need to fear submission because we have a king that loves us, that provides for us. And so this is all about examining our own, our own hearts. We can't continue the pattern of rejecting God as king. Because aren't you tired? Aren't you tired of fighting battling, defending, and rejecting Jesus? Aren't you tired of that crown being so heavy? What areas in each and every one of your lives are you holding on to? Are you desperately clinging to that crown? Where are you failing to submit to God's rule? Uh, Jennifer Colby sent me this story about Queen Victoria. I don't know what era she was from. Not the current queen who just passed away, but long before that. But one of the chaplains of Her Late Majesty Queen Victoria had been preaching about the second coming of the Lord. And afterward, in conversation with the preacher, the queen ex exclaimed, Oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. Why? asked the chaplain. And the queen replied, I should love to lay my crown at his feet. We all must be prepared to lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Because here's the thing. I even brought some more if, you guys, if any of you guys are trying to be kings and queens yourselves. Because here's what it is. This is basically how valuable it is to make yourself king. You hear the plastic. <laughs> This is, how, this is how, how, how good our own kingship is. This is how strong our walls are when we build up our own, our own kingdom. They mean nothing. Our rule is pointless. All that junk that we hold on to is worthless, just like these fake crowns. Our crowns are merely imitations trying to be like God. And here's the truth. All kings and kingdoms will lay down their crowns eventually, either because they wanted to or because they were forced to at the end of the age. So at this time, I do want to invite the band back up, and we're going to shift gears a little bit as we close out in worship. For those of you who may not know, today is Palm Sunday. This is the first day of Holy Week celebration. This is the week leading up to Easter. And next, next Sunday, we're going to be going to... <laughs> Thanks, Don. Uh, we are going to be recognizing the greatest event in human history, the day that humanity rejected Jesus as king. We continued the pattern all the way back to the garden. We have rejected Jesus as king, but his sovereignty didn't change. And so we are celebrating Jesus' death on the cross and his eventual resurrection because he did conquer death. He defeated sin, death, and the devil. Nothing challenges his rule. So this week is a week of celebration remembrance, and hope 
We are honoring Jesus as king. We are celebrating his victory. We are mourning a sinful world. And we find hope in Jesus' return. So I want to end with this reading uh, as I invite the children to come out and be a part of this celebration. John 12, 12 through 16. The next day, the great crowd that had come, come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, and it was written, Do not be afraid, daughter Zion. See, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. At first, his disciples did not understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. Please join me in worship, worshiping a king worth following, a humble king, a king worthy of our hearts. Let's lay down our crowns.